God. Tonight we're looking at the holiness of God as it intersects uh, with the birth of Jesus. Uh, so let me pray for us, ask that God will help us as we think about uh, this theme with the arrival of his son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it's living and active, uh, that you speak to us through it, that we might know uh, not only your salvation plan, but also that we might know how to live in the light of it and respond to you. And Lord, we ask tonight as we think about uh, the arrival of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and your character, uh, that we might understand afresh uh, all that you have done for us in Christ and the way he meets our great need. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a famous American pastor named James Boyce um, who was speaking to a group one day about the attributes, the characteristics of God. And he asked them to list them in order of what they thought was the most important. And they said, firstly, love, and then wisdom, and then power, mercy, all-knowing, truth, and lastly, holiness. And that surprised me, Boyce said, because the Bible refers to God's holiness more than any other attribute. The Bible doesn't generally talk about, refer to God as loving, 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 or wise, wise, wise. But over and over we hear or read the cry of the angels, holy, holy, holy. You see, God's sacrificial love at the cross makes no sense if we don't need saving from his judgment on sin because of his holy character. To know God, we must understand his holiness. What has that got to do with Christmas? How does the birth of Christ satisfy God's holiness? Well, tonight we're going to think about this attribute of holiness, as I mentioned, its intersection with Christ's birth. So firstly, we need to grasp God's holiness. Grasping God's holiness. Have a look with me again at Isaiah chapter 6 that was just read for us. Because in this moment, there is some important, helpful insights for us as we piece together these two things. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There are two aspects to God's holiness and they're both present in this section. Firstly, God's holiness refers to his transcendence, his otherness. And God is separate, he is distinct, he is different, he is above his creation. And we see this in verses 1 to 4, as Isaiah describes this vision of God that he has seen. And notice the picture in verse 1, the Lord is high and exalted, he is seated on a throne. And so the image conveys God's rule, but also that he will judge and so great is God that merely the train of his robe fills Solomon's impressive temple. Because as 
the seraphim point out in verse 3 is not just the temple, let alone Israel, that is God's realm, but the whole earth is his realm. And then to highlight further his transcendence, how he is set apart from us, his lowly creatures, we hear of these seraphim, these heavenly beings whose name means to burn or burning ones, speaking of their fiery appearance. And so these grand otherworldly creatures are overawed by the presence of God. And so they show us the right response, the appropriate reverent and praiseful response in his presence. And they have this threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy. And it's just highlighting over and over again God's otherness, his transcendence. But secondly, God's holiness also refers to his righteousness, his moral purity, his perfection. And that's emphasized in verses 5 to 7, you might have noticed, where the transcendent presence of God causes Isaiah to immediately proclaim woe upon himself. He is so struck by his sinfulness. Isaiah has a heavy sense suddenly that all is lost for him now, that he is ruined because he is before God in this state. And so he confesses instantly um, that he is ruined. Um, and this term unclean, which is used here, or he uses of himself, is a general one in the Old Testament. It relates to anything that is unfit to be in God's presence. But notice here it's teemed with the word lips, so unclean lips. It points to his speech in particular. But not only his speech, notice, but he refers to the whole nation of Israel. That they're unclean because of their words. The Bible, particularly the book of Isaiah, talks a lot about our words because they seem to be a reflection of our heart. They're an expression of who we are and what we're trusting in. And so to say that he has unclean lips means to say more broadly that his trust is not fully in the God of Israel. That his heart sometimes leans on other things. And there's a belief here, isn't there, that no one could see God and live. Now, that dates back to Exodus 19 in the Old Testament. Remember when the nation of Israel came to Mount Sinai and Moses was there and they were to receive the law? And then God gives instruction to Moses that he is going to descend on Mount Sinai in a thick cloud so the people cannot see him. And indeed, they're not even to come or approach the mountain, only Moses to go up lest they die. And so there was this understanding always throughout the Old Testament that you could not be in the presence of God because you are a sinner, because you are unclean. You cannot enter the purity of God and live. Now, it is true that there were a privileged few, both then and at other times, that had been permitted to see God in one form or another. It's uncertain how clearly they were in God's presence. Moses was one such person. But notice Isaiah here finds himself in God's presence and even in a vision, he is terrified. He is fearing for his life. You know, there was a missionary that was back home on furlough a few years ago in Sydney. He was telling a story. His role uh, was to take Bibles into Saudi Arabia, which uh, needless to say is a dangerous job. Um, and he had had a run-in with a particular customs officer at one stage which made him worried about his next delivery. And so he got a flight that would deliberately land at about midnight, hoping to avoid his nemesis. But he found as he was lining up at that time 
and he looked into the distance that that customs officer was present, sadly. And as he got closer, suddenly the officer noticed him and started gesticulating towards him and then saying things out loud, drawing attention to him. And it was at that point that he thought, well, my cargo is not going to get through and maybe I'm going to be in trouble here. And when all seemed lost as he got quite close towards the checkpoint, suddenly one of the royal family, one of the princes of Saudi, suddenly entered the airport terminal. Everyone saw him, noticed and bowed down, was falling in reverence because of the presence of the future king of the country, except for this customs officer who was so caught up in his anger over this Christian that was bringing in Bibles that he did not notice him. But the prince didn't fail to notice his lack of reverence. And so he walked up behind him and tapped him on the shoulder. Well, this man nearly dropped on the spot in a heart attack in such great fear that here was the prince and he had missed him. Well, I know it's only an earthly example, a mere shadow of Isaiah's predicament, but it gives you a picture of feeling ruined before the ruler who notices all things and will judge, can judge, our actions. And so if we return to Isaiah for a moment, we have this question, what can be done? Is he going to die? Or is there some solution to he, a sinner, who is unclean, being in the presence of a holy God? Well, the answer comes in verses 6 and 7. Notice again, Isaiah records, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, the altar symbolizes, of course, in the temple, the means by which God would provide atonement payment for sin for his people so that it might be dealt with. And a sacrifice would normally be offered, an animal, of course. But here we have replaced by a burning coal. What is clear is that Isaiah is going to be cleansed here purely because of God's mercy and grace. It is God who has initiated this action and he is going to be made holy so that he can stand in the Lord's presence. We're not told what this burning coal represents, what means this atonement actually is ultimately paid for, made by. Which brings us to the second half of our consideration tonight. So secondly, this is where the birth of Jesus comes in. The birth of Jesus. Why the holiness of God the Father... And the Christmas story intersect and solve a puzzle here. So Luke 2 verse 11, we read, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So together these titles you know, highlight the exalted status of Jesus and his role in God's plan to make us holy. And yet as we unpack Luke's account, it seems very unlikely that it would be this way that God would deal with our sin, with our uncleanness before him. We've already heard the story read. You may remember back in verse 7 of Luke 2, we learn that the birth took place in an area where animals are kept because a manger is a feeding store or a trough for cattle. And this, we're told, happens because there's no guest room, there's no room available, the normal accommodation for travellers. 
Now, whether the manger means that they actually stayed in a stable or whether they were in a house still is an open question for commentators. Often poorer families would have the animals in the house, so the stable was indoors, if you like, just in the next room, rather than being a separate building away from the house. Whatever the exact scenario, it's very clear that this is a very lowly place, very lowly beginnings for this one who was born with such exalted titles. Not only are the optics of a commanding arrival missing, but he has entered into the messiness of this world by being born where animals feed. You know, for the God of the Bible who is set apart, distinct, he's not only entering into a world marred by sin, but he is instantly in the dirt, as it were, seemingly indistinct from the fallen creatures that he's living amongst. This just seems so counterintuitive, so unexpected. Jesus is not born in some holy space. He doesn't arrive in the temple where it has been perfectly cleansed by the priests regularly so that it would be a right area. He's instantly surrounded by everything that is unclean, by people stained by sin. He takes on our decaying flesh and he lives amongst us. Is this the way that God's holiness and our sin can be brought together? I think it can be hard for us to take in the incarnation. We sometimes even marvel at people who go to extraordinary lengths to live among those that they're trying to help. One famous story is of George Adamson. He was an Englishman, actually born in India, and his nickname was Baba Yasimba, which means father of lions. Um, Adamson, along with his wife Joy, featured in an award-winning documentary called Born Free, based on the book that she had written about their life. It tells the story of how they had adopted orphaned lionesses. Um, they had adopted their first in Kenya in 1956. A lion was called Elsa, and they were the first people ever to release a captive-raised lion successfully back into the wild. And they kept doing it after the book and the documentary. Adamson spent the rest of his life. He lived in this reserve in Kenya until his death at the age of 83 when he was killed by Somali poachers, bandits that came in seeking to take the lives of the lions that he was trying to raise. He died protecting those he lived among and sought to save. Now, although this is a story which is incarnational, it's a mere shadow of the unique birth, life and death of Jesus. I mean, Luke makes it clear, even at Christ's arrival, that he came to save us. And from verse 8, we learn that the first people to whom this amazing message is going to be delivered are shepherds. Again, if you're thinking holiness, <laughs> you're thinking, dun, dun, this is not fitting the picture. He's born in a stable, and then the message is delivered to people who were considered unclean by the whole nat nation. You know, They did not take part, usually, because of their job in the purity and the systems of cleanliness in terms of the Jews going to the temple and offering the right sacrifices. They were those who were impure. They were a despised group in society. This choice of audience is very surprising. More than that, they had a poor reputation. Everyone treated them with distrust. 
as a result. And so it seems amazing that such momentous events, such news, would be delivered to such people. Is this how God's holiness and Christ's birth work together? Again, it all seems wrong. Surely the announcement would be made to religious leaders, you know, to the high priests in Jerusalem, at least the local synagogue ruler in Bethlehem. Why to these nobodies out in a field that are minding sheep? Those that are not considered clean before God. But notice the angel's message to the shepherds following the birth of Jesus. In verse 10 to 14 of Luke 2. The angels announce, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so we see that the arrival of Jesus is the birth of a baby who is, his, who is our Savior. And of course, the word Savior means deliverer or rescuer. It was mainly used of God the Father in the Old Testament. He was the one who could rescue, but here it's applied to Jesus, his son, pointing to his divine nature. In addition to Savior, he's given the titles of Messiah and Lord. Messiah or Christ means anointed one. It refers to the promised leader or ruler of Israel that would come in the line of David that they had been waiting for for centuries. The one who would have an eternal kingdom and would rule God's people. And the term Lord, well again, it was largely used of God the Father. And here it is being used of Jesus. Can it be that this child born in such unimportant circumstances is the Christ? Luke goes on to say two verses later what this Savior brought in verse 14 as the angels respond in song. The good news that the birth of this baby marks is the opportunity of peace. Peace with a holy God. From God who we are alienated from because of our sin. The one who we cannot relate to as we stand in our natural state having rejected his perfect standards. It's a reference to how this child who would enter into our mess and later die came to save us and could be the one that deals with that issue once and for all. In God's great love for us, he decided, desired to restore our broken relationship with himself by sending his son into his unclean creation to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And so we have peace with God because of this child who was given He is our substitute who dies in our place. Perhaps some of you know the story of the Richardson family that went to Papua New Guinea in the 1960s. Uh, Don Richardson's book, uh, Peace Child, tells of him going with his family to the Sawi tribe, a head-hunting tribe, in 1962 in New Guinea. This tribe's savagery was a way of life. The tribesmen considered head-hunting, cannibalism and treachery as virtues. And as he first tried to explain the gospel to them, they thought Judas was the hero because he betrayed Jesus, not this guy that died on the cross. And so he despaired of ever being able to get the good news across to them. He thought, how will they ever understand God's love? 
And at last, the warfare between the Sawi tribe and a neighboring tribe just got so out of control, they said, we're in danger, we're going to have to leave. And when the chief of the tribe heard that, he said, no, 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 they'd grown to love this family and to trust them. And they said, we will seek to make peace. And Don said, okay, <laughs> let's see how this happens. And the next day, to his amazement, the two tribes met out in this open clearing and he watched a ceremony that he could not believe. They had a rule by which if peace was going to descend, that a child was given from one child to the other tribe, and then a child was returned to them. And while ever those children stayed alive, peace would remain. And it was a terrible ceremony because every mother feared that her child would just be selected by the tribe and given away to these people that she didn't know. And after some indecision and emotional turmoil, eventually the chief took his one and only son and rushed over and gave it to the leader of the other tribe and in return received a baby boy. Well, as Don reflected on the significance of this ceremony, he realized it was a powerful analogy for how we receive peace with God. And so shortly afterwards, he gathered the elders of the tribe together and he told them, how God, the Heavenly Father, sent His only Son, Jesus, to earth as His peace child to make peace between a holy God and sinful humans, to deal with this problem of sin once and for all. You see, as we reflect on Isaiah's interaction with the holy God and then God's solution to the problem of sin by sending His Son, the Lord Jesus, I think it goes without saying that this runs counter to our world's view of the danger of sin and the work of God in Christ. For many Australians today, if they acknowledge God's reality at all, they like to view him as a heavenly Santa Claus, one for whom you can say nothing more than he is infinitely kind and will receive you on whatever basis you choose to offer to him. Sometimes this thinking will even find its way into the church. And once it puts down roots, true Christianity dies off overnight. Because the substance of Christian faith is in Jesus as our sin bearer, somebody who had to die on the cross to take on our rebellion so that it would be dealt with. But if God is not holy, if sin creates no problem to him, well, then there's no need for an atonement. Sins are certainly not worth pu punishing. They're nothing that is going to prevent us from entering his presence and being with him forever in heaven. Many Aussies would say, of course I'll go to heaven. I'm a good bloke. If there's a God, he'll receive me. I'm his mate. Well, Isaiah would say otherwise. <laughs> Such ideas are illogical. And according to the Bible, they're simply empty and wrong. God's love is understood through the cross, where he punished his son for our sin in order to uphold his holiness while also receiving sinners. This is the wondrous mystery of Christmas. That God would act this way to solve the problem. Jesus was forsaken by God the Father so that we don't have to be. 
This is the wonder that God would send his son into our world, a world marred by sin, that Jesus might make those who place their faith in him holy. How? Well, by his righteousness being credited to us, his perfection, his perfect life being given to your account. This is how the writer to the Hebrews summarizes it in chapter 2, Hebrews 2. Verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Do you see here, for God's holiness to be satisfied and Christ's substitutionary death to work, he had to come just as we are, become like us and enter into our world, enter into the messiness, into the uncleanness, into a place that was no longer holy because of us. And the mystery of Isaiah's right standing is made known to us in the birth of Jesus. Come behold the wondrous mystery of Christmas. The birth of the perfect son, whose life met the father's holy standards on our behalf, and whose death paid for our sin, so that instead of ruin, we might receive God's peace. That is amazing. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. That right and wrong matters. That you must sit in judgment on all those that reject you and would face you on the final day in their own works. Help us to see that like Isaiah, if we come before you on the basis of of our life and the things we've done and said we are ruined but if we receive your son the Lord Jesus that we can be made holy we can receive his righteousness simply by faith that his perfection can be credited to our sinners so that we may be fit to be in your presence oh Lord we thank you for your grace shown to us in the giving of your son help us to respond to him Help us to reflect on the wonder of this gift at Christmas. We pray it in Jesus' name.